be seated. Morning. Oof. That's a little hot. I know I speak loud, but that was a little... Got some feedback going on? We good? Okay. Good morning. Um, my name is JD. I am one of the elders here at Pillar Church. I'd like to welcome you to this gathering, uh, this gathered body, uh, together rejoicing and praising the Lord through spiritual songs, through prayer. Uh, we will... Uh, we will uh, rejoice and praise the Lord through Lord's Supper after the sir, after preaching of His Word, and then just reading His Word together. Like just causes us to praise, and as we gather together, these things that we feel like are are vastly important. And so, like this morning, I couldn't help. Usually, when I'm preaching, I'll I'll kind of be reserved in my singing just to kind of make sure I save my voice because I also have a, a three hour class after service today that I'm giving and and, uh, and and with another elder. And so, like I try to save my voice a little bit, but I couldn't help like singing out with the songs we had this morning, like singing in, in spiritual songs as the body gathers together and as we rejoice together what God is doing and has done in our midst. Uh, as has been alluded, we are currently walking uh, through the book of Acts. Uh, the longer title for this book is called the Acts of the Apostles. Acts lays out for us a new age in which we will see a transition from brothers and sisters following uh, the teaching of Jesus and hanging on His every word to the, they themselves becoming witnesses as been given to as the command was given from Jesus to the, the apostles that they would become witnesses of Jesus Christ after His death, burial, His resurrection, and His ascension as He leads and goes into heaven. So Acts forms for us the beginning of the church age where followers of Jesus begin to gather together in homes and temples to preach the good news to those who are near. Those who are near are Christians um, who are being built up by the Word. Those who are being sanctified and, and growing in the Word. And those who are far off, as we'll see today, those who have, uh, as the Bible calls them, those with no hope. Those who, those who are far away from God without the preaching and teaching and faithful witness of the disciples to those who are far off. So we will see in our text today how this plays itself out to those who are near and to those who are far off. So let's read together Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. If you do not have a, a Bible that is your own, there should be a Bible located under one, hopefully underneath one of the seats here, one of the chairs. Please feel free to grab that, use that. Um, Acts comes uh, immediately following the four gospel accounts as we see the church begin as Jesus leaves. And so that's where we're at. Read, uh, we're in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to read 1 through 41 together. When the day of Pentecost arrived, Pentecost is also called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. I mean, it was seven weeks after Passover. That's why it's called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. So it's 50 days after Passover is Pentecost. Just to give you an idea of what Pentecost... Pentecost means something different for the Christian, but for the Jews this day, they were, they were celebrating near the temple what was known as the Feast of Harvest. So when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belong to Cyrene and Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking say, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. The last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, comes the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. For David says concerning Him, I saw the Lord always before me. For He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Before being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and, and, all, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit He has poured out the, uh, this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. 
For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your foot enemies your footstool. So let all, those, let all the house of Israel therefore know, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. He said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, uh, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. A monumental day, one that if you're a Christian, you've probably seen or read about what happens here in Acts chapter 2 as a, a, a real monumental moment in the life of the church. And so these apostles, it says, in, in, starting in chapter 2 verse 1, they were gathered together and they were all in one place. So I have just very t- two easy points this morning. Two easy points. Uh, first point we'll cover 1 through 13. Second point we'll cover the rest of today's sermon. The first point is this. Believers' lives, believers lives are transformed by the Holy Spirit. Believers' lives have been transformed by the Holy Spirit. So this promised Holy Spirit, back in Acts chapter 1, Jesus promised the apostles that He would send His Spirit at a due time. And in that time, the Spirit would come and it would indwell the believers. And they would be able to do things that they had never done before, that this power would come upon them. And and through that power, they would then become His witnesses, Jesus' witnesses to the rest of the world to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the utter ends of the world as they knew it in that time. And so they're together in this place. And in verse verse 2 it says, Suddenly there came from heaven a, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. So if you know anything about Scripture, God is depicted as times coming in as a rushing wind or rushing water. The same sound can kind of be made. If you've ever been at the base of a waterfall, how many of you ever stood at the base of a waterfall? How many of you have ever felt the wind from that waterfall as it, crush, as it, as it comes to you? Like you can feel the wind, but it sounds the same. The rushing water and the wind coming at you sounds the same. It's, it's, a, it's an act and a source of, of real power. And this is the way that God comes into them and it it fills the entire room with this this wind that comes in where they're sitting. And then divided tongues as a fire. So so we know that God in in the Old Testament shows Himself as fire by night to the Israelites as He guides them out of the wilderness, right? God presents Himself as fire and wind. So this is God's presence being made manifest to those 120 as promised by Jesus. to come and it rested on them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then something amazing happens. As if that weren't enough. 
they began to speak in other languages. It says here in other tongues. That word is, is uh, translated as other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. So as they were there and as a Spirit comes upon them, they, believe, they begin to speak in a language that is not their own. Remember, these are just Galileans as they say. How can I understand them? And so because of Pentecost, there is a, there is a, uh, because of this festival that is happening, there is this melting pot of Jews who have gathered around the temple. There are these who have gathered in Jerusalem for, these, uh, for the devout men from every nation represented there. And they would gather together for this festival. So it's no surprise that we were gathered together. And at this sound, the multitude came together and something happened. They were bewildered. They were, they were surprised. They were, act, they were confused by the fact that each one was hearing the apostles, these 120, starting and speaking in their own language. Now, not all of these speak in Galileans, and how is that that we hear each of us in his own native language? And, and Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, describes for us all those who were there. He names them out. But we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So they're hearing in their own language. Their own original first language, they are hearing about the works of God in their own tongue. So God is doing something by the power of the Holy Spirit to get the gospel to those people who are gathered together in Jerusalem already. And all were amazed, verse 12. They were perplexed. They said, What does this mean? You got, you got some of those who are going, what does this mean? What, how, what is this result of? How is this even happening? And then you got the other side over here going, the old skeptics. You know, there's always a skeptic, right? There's always a few skeptics in the room. And they're saying, I, I don't know what's happening here, but they must be drunk on wine. Something must be going on. But what we do know that happened that day as the Holy Spirit indwelled those members of that original first early church was something powerful. Was something that was transformative. Was something that they couldn't entirely explain themselves except for Peter understood. But I'm sure even in them as it suddenly came on that they were surprised. That they rejoiced. The same is true for us that, that for if you're a believer here, if you've been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ, you have been indwelled with the Holy Spirit that is helping you, that is guiding you, that is sanctifying you. You have been transformed and renewed and regenerated, not for your own good, but for the glory and the purposes of God Himself. And so this spirit that comes upon us is, 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 is important for us. And we see this Holy Spirit, that this Holy Spirit is God Himself. We see this from many scriptures, including Acts in chapter 5. It says in this verse, Peter confronts Ananias as to why he lied to the Holy Spirit and tells him that he had not lied to men, but to God. 
can also know that the Spirit is God because He possesses the characteristics of God. For example, His omnipresence is seen in Psalm 139. Where, where can I go from Your Spirit, Lord? Where can I flee from Your Spirit? presence. If I, if I go up to heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. And so we know that the Holy Spirit, like God, resides in all places. And then we see the characteristic of omniscience in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But God revealed it to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For those, for among for who among men knows the thought of a man except the man's spirit without, within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So the Spirit indwells us, works in us, changes us, transforms us, even in the same way it did for these brothers and sisters who were gathered together. God did something in their midst. God did something in their midst. Now I want to take a couple moments and course correct a couple things that, that are divisions in the church today. Number one, uh, first one of that one is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This, this idea that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a separate event apart from salvation. Where God, you have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and that a separate event in a separate time the baptism of the Holy Spirit must come upon you. There's actually some teachings in our churches today where you cannot be a Christian unless you have experienced the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a separate account. However, Scripture does not tell us anywhere in that where we see experiences of conversion. And even through the rest of the book of Acts, we do not see where this has to take place in order for the Spirit to indwell. Matter of fact, as we get ready to read, the, uh, go through the uh, second in the second part of Acts, we will see that 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 this is not a separate event that has to happen uh, for these regenerated three thousand. So, for those who who have been in churches where they teach that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a separate event, just not true. Think about think about um, the thief on the cross and a couple of examples here, right? So the thief on the cross, there was no baptism of the Holy Spirit. He's standing, he is standing there, he's on the cross with Jesus, and he says, um, uh, Jesus looks at him and says, Today you will be with me in paradise. There was no baptism of the Holy Spirit. It was not a separate event. As we look at the Scriptures all throughout the rest of the book of Acts and Scriptures in general, that this is not a separate event. At the moment of salvation, you are indwelt. God does a work in your heart. You believe and dwelt with the Holy Spirit that gives you power, that transforms you again into, um, into Christians. The second thing that we see here, and that's a, that's a, that can be a, a dividing line in many churches, is the speaking of tongues, the gift of tongues as the Bible uh, proclaims them to be. The question is, um, are they valid today? The question is, are they valid today? Are speaking in tongues valid today? It's not a practice that we see regularly in our church that I've ever seen in this church. So the question is, are they, have they ceased? Are they continuing? What is it that we should be doing? So I grew up in a, in, a, in a free will Baptist church about an hour from here. Matter of fact, if you head to good old Kinston, North Carolina from here on 258, you will pass the church, this little white 
church that sits out in the country by itself, White Steeple Church, that I grew up in. It was it was a free will Baptist church, a very very southern uh, s church, you know, where where everybody wore suits and ties. All the men suit, wore suits and ties, and the women wore mostly dresses. And the kids ran around like we were crazy persons out in the churchyard. You know, that's that's what I remember growing up with. And uh, but a very faithful church, a very a church I was saved in. Just a faithful preaching church. The community in that church was tight. I mean, it was a very tight-knit community. They were, they were legitimately brothers and sisters in Christ. I had never seen the tongues spoken in that church to, to this day. I don't think there ever has been tongues that were ever spoken in this church. And so when I graduated high school, I went off to basic and AIT in Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And, and so I go there, and when I come back, uh, my aunt and uncle, who were who were very involved in their church, uh, we went to. They invited me to go to their church when I came back uh, at home, and uh, so when I came back, they were like, well, "Why don't you go to church with us?" And so I was like, "Sure, I'll go to church with you guys." And so remember, the only thing that I had ever seen as a church was this small, rural, free will Baptist church. You know, very staunch suit and ties. And so I go to this other church, and it was a very large church, and man, there was a lot. And so as, as I'm gathered together, as, as I'm gathered with the other saints who were there, um, the worship happens, and I'm like, okay, most people are in suits and ties. All of a sudden, like, things start happening. People start coming out of their suits and ties. Yeah, people started running around the room. And uh, very different from the church that I had grown up in because I was in a Pentecostal holiness church. I don't know if you've ever been in a Pentecostal holiness church, but very much believe in the active gifts of tongues preached in the church. And I mean, I was a wide-eyed teenager at 19 at this time. And I mean, it was very different from what I had experienced. And so I'm like, okay, I've got the church that I grew up in doing it this way. The church that I, I, I'm here this morning and I'm seeing it this way. Now, it feels... Emotionally, it feels pretty, pretty great. You know what I mean? Like, there's a lot happening. Yeah, I mean, there's literally people doing laps around the church. And I mean, just it, it was just something I had never seen. And so I, I felt like I owed it to myself to like, okay, I got to figure out which one here is right. And so I've spent some time in my, uh, in, in my adult life trying to reconcile what this looks like. And what this means, and so I've uh, obviously I think I think one of the one of the easier ones that we can look at for looking at the gift of tongues is is First Corinthians fourteen, and I'm just trying to give us a, a a an idea of of what this looks like in our church in our context, and also kind of kind of where I stand on this. So Paul actually spends a whole chapter talking about prophecy, what we know as the preaching of the word. And the gift of tongues. So 1 Corinthians 14. I'm just going to read a few, um, a few verses for you today. Let's read verse 6 together. Now brothers, if I come... This is Paul speaking... Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Go down to verse 10. There are doubtless many languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language... 
I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So what Paul is saying in this context here is that, is like, hey, there are many different languages, and we should, we should strive to learn these languages, and all the languages that we know have meaning. But yet, if you don't know, if I, if I speak in a language that you won't understand, I'm not building you up at all. You just think I'm speaking gibberish. However, what Paul is saying here, look, look, if you're eager for manifestation, the Corinthian church, just so you know what he's correcting the Corinthian church here, is that they are speaking in tongues in a wrong way. That they're trying to uh, manifest in themselves the gift of speaking in tongues. And what Paul is trying to do is give them a course correction in that. And what he is calling out, he's saying, listen, here is what you need to know. You're trying to manifest something that's not there. You're not building up the church. So in regard to that, here is what you should do. You should use your gifts that you have, strive for excellence in those gifts. How many of you here as Christians believe you have a gift that you can give to the church? All of us should. Strive for excellence in that gift. You don't, have to, you don't have to strive for somebody else's gift. Right? Not everybody has the gift of hospitality. If you have the gift of hospitality, you should use that gift. But if you don't have that gift and hospitality is a struggle for you, find out what your gift is and use that gift. That's just an example. There are many gifts that have been given to the church. We should strive to excel in building up the church, not trying to manifest something in and of ourselves that's not there. So figure out what your gift is and excel in building up the church with your gift. Look at verse 19, what Paul says here. Actually, go to 18. I think it sets us up. So I thank God, this is Paul, that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So Paul had the gift of speaking in tongues. But look what he says. I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in the context of the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Like even Paul, who believed he had the gift of tongues, said, no, five words that I speak with my mind, intelligible, helpful words that build up the church, are more important than speaking 10,000 in tongues. Verse 21. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign for believers. I'm sorry, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. And that's what's hap- that, this is exactly what's happening in the context of Acts chapter 2. This is exactly what happened in the context. There were unbelievers there. There were believers in God Himself, but not those who believed in Jesus, except for those those few that were gathered together that the Holy Spirit came upon. 
while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. So the, the preaching of His Word, like me up here today, my expression to you, I am mainly preaching to the members of the church who are here today. If you're here and you are not a member of this church, or if you're here it's to believers, if you are here and not a believer, you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ today, I hope you hear me. I'm glad you are here. And I hope that something that is preached from the Word today, something that is in Scripture will, will bring about the Holy Spirit, that He will open your blind eyes, that He would undeafen your ears, and that He would open your hearts to the good news of the Gospel. But this is a time of building up for the church. This is a time of girding your loins for battle. This is, this is preparation for that for the rest of the week. This is prophecy that we speak is for the believers. So if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, and I think this is helpful, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophecy in an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face he will worship God through the preaching of his word is what will cause people to fall on their face and worship God and declare that God is really among you. It is not tongues that do that. Five intelligible words are better than 10,000 in tongues. Because prophecy, the preached word, is what transforms, what calls you to fall on your face by the work of the Spirit. And causes you to, to worship God, to declare that God is really among you. Last thing I'll say is this on 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. So, so, so Paul is talking about here the order of how worship should be. He says, when you come together, verse 26, I'll go up a little bit. When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. But if any speak in a tongue, let there be two or three at most, and in each in turn let someone interpret. So although I believe that those brothers and sisters in that Pentecostal Holiness Church, that large church that I went to, Although I believe that they are, they are faithful brothers and sisters, I believe they love the Lord. I believe that they are true to what it is they believe and know what, it, know what they think is right. However, if you follow Scripture, they're wholly wrong. They're wrong in how it is supposed to happen in an orderly fashion, if it does happen at all. I have been to Bali, Indonesia several times in my lifetime. All to do ministry and work in villages that have never heard the gospel. And each time that I have been there, I have never been able to speak Balinese. I wish I could have. I wish they could have heard me speak in their own language. It just did not happen. And so the truth is, do I believe that the, that, the, that, that the gift of tongues has ceased? I actually don't think so. I actually don't think so. I think that the God can actually use the gift of tongues in that context. In the context of someone's 
first language that they have not heard the gospel. And I'll tell you why, why I think that. Go to 1 Corinthians 13.8. Now, if I were to get a dividing line of this room and split it right down the middle, and I said, all the people who believe that the gifts of tongue have ceased sit over here, and all the people that believe that the tongues are still relevant and viable and good over here, we'd probably have about a 50-50 split. Because it's just true, and that exact split is true of scholars today. Many scholars believe that the tongues have, uh, have ceased, and many scholars believe that, that actually they, they continue to be. And this is it's relevant. It really is relevant in our churches. Eight, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, but then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Everybody get that? Let me explain it just in case we didn't. Prophecy will pass away. Tongues will pass away. Knowledge will pass away. And the reason that these things will pass away is because of the second coming of Christ Jesus Himself for believers. We see, we see right now, we see in a mirror that's dimly lit. We see the gospel, in a, in a, outside of the Holy Spirit, we, we see the gospel in a very, uh, with, even with the Holy Spirit, we see the gospel in a very dim mirror, is what it's saying. We see it in a very small way. We're only seeing a partial, I mean, it, we are like a child, is what it's saying. But now, when we become face-to-face with Christ Jesus, no more prophecy will be needed. No more tongues will be needed. No more knowledge will be needed because we will actually be in the presence of the knowledge, the wisdom, the Savior. We'll need nothing more. And so do I believe that God can use the gifts of tongues? Do I believe that God can use the gifts of healing? I do. Right now. But there are those who read this and they say, nope, they're ceased. They're done. The perfect has come. Perfect came. And so the, 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 the discrepancy is when, when did the perfect come? Was it at when He came into the earthly world or when it comes to second coming? I believe personally, now you may ask, I don't know where the other elders fall. I actually don't. This is, this is one of those open-handed issues. We are not closed-handed on this. Right? It's one of those open-handed issues we talk about. But as far as an, an expression of of the church, it has to be done in an orderly fashion, in a right way, in a knowledgeable way, in an understanding way. Acts chapter 2. Go back to Acts for me. Believers' lives have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit that we see here. Point number two. Unbelievers' lives are transformed through the power of the preached Word. Unbelievers' lives are transformed by the power of the preached 
word. Peter, he stands up. He's like, listen. He lifted his voice. He says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, we know it's a large crowd. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose. He's like, this is ridiculous. These people are not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. It's the third hour. So the, the, the hour always runs from, so when you say the sixth hour of the day, in their, in their time, and now they understood time, the sixth hour of their day was what? Lunchtime. So their day started at 6 a.m. So the third hour of the day would be 9 a.m. It's only the third hour of the day. So he clarifies for them. He's like, look, you guys are here. You're devout Jews. You are devout in your knowledge and wisdom of who God is. He says in the last, so he says, alright, listen to what the prophet Joel says. The last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the norm, uh, uh, calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter goes on to say, Men of Israel, like hear these words. You know these words. Listen to the words that are being preached or that are being told by the prophet Joel. Jesus of Nazareth, a Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite foreplan and knowledge of God. This was God's plan. It was His foreknowing. This was what God had originally said was going to happen. Just like He, as we saw in uh, end of chapter 1, that Judas would, be, would come. Jesus knew that He would... Uh, God knew in His foreknowledge that Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, would betray Jesus, would send Jesus to the cross. And yet it was God's foreknowledge and plan. Even in that, look what Peter says. You, you devout men of Jews, you, you men, who, men and women who are here, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You are lawless men, is what he's saying. So even in God's definite and foreknowledge of God and His definite plan of uh, that He would send Jesus and deliver Him up, man is still responsible. We are still responsible for our own thoughts about who God is. Our own sin creates this chasm that exists between us and God. And when we stand before Jesus one day, 
We will have to give an account for every good and bad thing that we have done. And so Peter knows this. He says, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. Jesus overcame the grave in a way that none of us ever could. And he goes on to say, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw, he spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption as we see in Psalm 16. A psalm that David wrote. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we were all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend, it was Jesus Himself who ascended. So let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, he reiterates it again, this Jesus whom you crucified. So you're here this morning and you have never put your faith or your trust in Christ Jesus. That you have never said, what do I do in response to all this information that you just gave? What do I do in response to knowing that Jesus came into this world, He died a death that I deserve, He went to a grave that I deserve to go go into, but ultimately God raised Him from the dead. How, How do I put my faith and trust in there? What must I do to be saved? If you've never asked that question, the answer is this. The Holy Spirit cuts their... Uh, they heard this. They were cut to the heart. God was working a salvation in them. Peter said to them and to and the rest of the apostles, uh, Peter said to them, here's what you should do. Repent. That means turn away from your sin. It means walk away, turn away, turn a 180 from the direction that you're going in your sin. And put your faith and trust in something besides yourself. Quit trusting in yourself for your own salvation. Because apart from Jesus Christ, coming belief in Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit pricking your heart, there is no salvation in yourself. It is Jesus that must... That, that you must see as Lord and Savior of your life. It is the Holy Spirit that must come and dwell inside of you to see things in a different light from the way that you were seeing them before. And then in that, as a right response, you should be baptized. As an outward expression of what God has done inwardly, you should be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins that the Holy Spirit may indwell you. And this promise is for you, it's for your children, and all who are far off, all those who do not have a relationship with Christ Jesus, this gospel is for you. 
Because you crucified Jesus. Your sin that indwells you from birth is what crucified Jesus and yet we can still have a right relationship with Him. It says, with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to encourage them, to exhort them to save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received His Word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so Peter, by the power of God and His resurrection, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit, this beautiful picture of the Trinity that we see, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, perfectly working in this context in the church, brings about an amazing day of salvation. These Jews, these devout Jews who thought they were going to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of weeks, walk away knowing who Jesus Christ was, knowing what it is He had done on their behalf. The Holy Spirit speaking to them and giving them words of wisdom about God. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of what happens in our hearts and in our lives when we turn from our sin, when we repent and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But it's always not this way, right? I mean, what I mean by 3,000 souls saved, like we would love to go out. We would love to stand before 5,000 people, right? And preach a 30-minute sermon. And 3,000 people would give their life to Christ, right? That would be beautiful. It would be awesome. And the Spirit can do it. And God can do it today. But there's also, I want to give us like a, a, a good, like why, didn't, why, didn't, why does this happen more? Why, why doesn't this, this happen more in our lives, in our churches? Like how come we don't see this happening more? Well, the fact is, is that it, it does happen. And it has happened in our midst. But there's also another side. So let me give you another picture. We're introduced to a guy named Stephen in Acts chapter 6. So I'm actually going ahead a little bit, right? We're introduced to a guy named Stephen in Acts chapter 6. Stephen, who is, who is one of the ones that is built up in the church and he becomes a servant to the church. He says he was an astute man of God. That he was, he was righteous and holy and loved the Lord. And so he goes and he, he, he gets an opportunity to preach to a multitude. And he preaches a sermon that, is, that, is, that cuts to the heart, right? I mean, gets right to the heart of the people that he's speaking to. And what happens? 3,000 were saved? No. Not at all. A very different response. A very different response. They actually picked up stones and they stoned him to death. So how is it that Peter can preach a sermon, faithful, devoted, follower of Jesus, Peter, who denied him three times, by the way. Like how can God use this guy to bring about the salvation of 3,000 souls and yet we're introduced to Stephen who is a devout man of faith, same as Peter, has his own sin issues, I'm sure. He preaches a similar sermon and is stoned to death. 
And so we have to we have to look at things and in 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 have a good theological viewpoint from where we come from. If you're far off, if you're not a believer in, in Jesus Christ, something has to happen for you to believe. And it has to be a right work. A work that is wrought in you by God to bring about salvation. And so for these 3,000 that were cut to the heart, God is willing to bring about salvation to these people. But in another context, as Stephen preaches to the word of, as Stephen preaches to the multitude that he's preaching to, something very different happens. God is not working in their heart. It is not a time for repentance and faith. So I want to, I want to give you a couple of examples of what this looks like in a real way. A way that is happening even today. So there's a U.S. Army chaplain. I don't know if you've heard about this, but his name is Jose Rondon. But he is a a U.S. Army chaplain in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. He says that since the beginning of March... He has seen 1,459 soldiers come to Christ since March of this year. The quote is, God is doing great things at Fort Leonard Wood. This is from Jose himself. Among the hundreds of soldiers who have come to know Christ personally, there is nothing more exhilarating in life than seeing people come to Christ. Retired Major General Doug Carver says this, Our troops, who are increasingly hungry for truth and relevancy in their lives, are finding a faith that works through a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Historically, God has often used the military as a catalyst for revival. In the past two years, there have been tens of thousands of professions of faith and thousands of baptisms inside of our military. The Lord is answering our prayers for revival within our military communities. I've prayed for over 40 years for our troops and their families to experience the reality of Jesus Christ in a new and fresh way. This current spiritual awakening... Or revival happening at Fort Leonard Wood is an indication of a great move from God taking place within within the U.S. Armed Services today, and 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 we see this in the work that Jose has been doing there at Fort Leonard Wood, and I pray that he would do a work here. But I want us to have a healthy perspective of what that looks like. Would we rejoice? Would we rejoice that? That, that, that the church across the street, if they're faithfully teaching Christ, would we rejoice if 3,000 were saved this morning? Yes. Yes, and we, we don't want to get caught up in building our churches up in a way that does not honor the Lord. We want to celebrate where God is building up His church universally. 
And we want to have a healthy perspective on what that looks like. He may save 3,000 today here in Jacksonville this morning. He may save none. Let me give you one more picture just to give you a, a two different pictures. At a meeting of Baptist leaders in the late 1700s, a newly ordained minister stood to argue for the value of overseas missions. He was abruptly interrupted by an older minister who said, Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, He'll do it without consulting you or me. The man who stood up that said this was William Carey. I don't know if you know much about William Carey, but let me, let me give you some, some ideas or some thoughts on who we... Uh, let me give you some facts on William Carey. Carey was a, um, was a man who was increasingly dismayed at his fellow Protestants' lack of mission interest. So in response to this, he penned a, a, a letter titled, An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. He argued that Jesus' great commission applied to all Christians of all times. He castigated fellow believers of His day for ignoring it. Here's what he says, Multitudes sit at ease, give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. So in 1792, Carey organized a mission society. And within a year, Carey, uh, a surgeon by the name of John Thomas, and Carey's family, which included three boys and another child on the way, were, he were headed to India on a ship. Carey's early years in India were miserable. They were miserable. Thomas, the surgeon, departed. The enterprise, Carey was forced to move his family repeatedly. Illness racked the family, and loneliness and regret started to set in. He wrote to a Christian friend, he says, I am in a strange land. I have no Christian friends. I have a large family. I have nothing to supply their wants. But he also said, I have God, and His Word is sure. So Carey goes on to learn Bengali. A few weeks he begins translating the Bible into the, to the Bengali language and preaching to small gatherings. In this time, Carey contracted malaria. His five-year-old son Peter died of dysentery. It became too much for his wife who, who went crazy mad and tried to kill him twice. She eventually had to be confined to a room and physically restrained. Case Carey went on to write, This is indeed the valley of the shadow of death to me. But I rejoice that I am not here withstanding, that God is here. And in October of 1799, things begin to change. He was now under the protection of the Danes who permitted him to preach legally because he had been preaching illegally. And in December 1800, after seven years of preaching the gospel, seven years of translating Scripture into the Begali language, Carey baptized his first convert. 
his first convert. Over the next 28 years, he and his pundits who had come over and began to help him translated the entire Bible into India's major languages, Bengali, Oriya, Marathi, Hindi, Assamese, and Sanskrit, and parts of 209 other languages and dialects. So by the time Kerry had died, by the time Kerry died, he had spent 41 years in India. All 41 years without a furlough. He never came back to the States. His mission could count only some 700 converts in a nation of millions. But he had laid an impressive foundation of Bible translations, education, and social reform. He penned the words, Expect great things, attempt great things, in a letter that he wrote to the churches back home. Expect great things, attempt great things. I don't know if you know or not, but there's a, there's a revival that's happening in India today. And it's because of work in 18th century by a guy named William Carey who went there for the first time to preach the gospel. We don't know what God will do. We don't. But we must be faithful, devoted witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Transforms hearts. He changes our direction. He changes our lives. He causes us to do things we would never imagine doing, including me standing here before you this morning. So be faithful. Expect great things. Attempt great things as if God will create a movement. It may never happen, but what if it does? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help my own heart, my own skepticism as I think about what you're doing in Fort Leonard Wood, my own skepticism when it comes to seeing 3,000 saved. Lord, I, I, I find myself more like Thomas who had to physically see your wounds than I do maybe Peter who was more faithful, Lord, and understood what you had done and what he had seen. So Lord, I pray that you would help me to have the courage, the audacity to expect you to do great things in our midst, to do great things in my own life. Lord, that I would attempt great things because of the Holy Spirit that indwells me and the Holy Spirit that can, that can indwell others who are far off from you. Help us to be faithful witnesses devoted to prayer that you would change lives transform us, renew us by the preaching of your word, by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.